Good morning. As uh, Pastor Rich indicated, I am uh, Luke Wayne, for those who don't know me, uh, uh, another elder here at the church. And uh, today we are going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 6. We will not be using the slides today, so if uh, everybody could, if you didn't bring a Bible, they should be in the seats in front of you there. Pull those out and just open up to Matthew chapter 6. Um, our main section we'll be focusing on is in 25 through 34. Uh, so while you guys turn there, though, um, earlier in Matthew chapter 6, before where we're going to be looking at today, and in fact in the section that Pastor Rich just read to you, uh, Jesus gives his disciples a model prayer, uh, what we often call the Lord's Prayer. And this is a prayer that Christians uh, have memorized for uh, hundred, thousand, a couple thousand years for the entire history of the church. Some Christians will pray it word for word from memory. Um, and for, for the most part, Christians have used it as what it is. It's a model prayer that they keep in mind when they pray as some of the themes that we should be hitting on, things we should be remembering to pray for. But something that we often don't notice about this prayer is that this prayer, as, we, as, as many of us know, it's sitting in the middle of Matthew chapter 6, which is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon Jesus is preaching that's recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, those three chapters are one sermon, and this prayer sits right in the middle of that sermon, and it's not a side note. It's a, it serves an important function in the, prayer, in the sermon. And so many of the things that Jesus says we ought to pray for, he then expounds on in the rest of the sermon and explaining why we ought to pray for these things, why it is important for us to keep these things before our mind, before our heart, and in our prayer life, and continue to remind ourselves our dependence on God in these areas and why these things are so important. Uh, the most obvious is uh, when, Jesus says, when Jesus has us pray, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors, because literally the very next sentence after he concludes the model prayer is expounding on that. Verses 14 and 15 are expounding on that very idea of this prayer for God forgive us and we will forgive others. And Jesus explains that. But the section that he spends the most time on, the clause from this prayer that Jesus spends the most time developing in the rest of his sermon, that he hangs out on for the longest period of time, is give us this day our daily bread. This idea of praying that God would provide and provide regularly just what we need when we need it Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus spends a great deal of time explaining this, why it's important to us, the impact on our Christian life, why we should be constantly calling out to God on this and reminding ourselves of this reality. And so we see that most specifically in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, where it says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So here, Jesus walks out this idea as of God as provider of our needs, of the things that we need in life. And yet, amidst his discussing this, the why this is so important quickly becomes clear because Jesus has a drumbeat throughout this discussion. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. Do not be anxious. He repeats this multiple times throughout this discussion, that there is a connection between our looking to God as our provider, our daily sustainer, and our anxiety, our worry. And Jesus wants us to see that. He wants us to understand that. And He wants that to become embedded in our life and faith and even in our prayer. And it's interesting that today, I mean, we live in uncertain times. There's no doubt about that. And yet it seems that we, we, we live in times of heightened anxiety, and yet it's a time of the most, despite all the uncertainty that we face, it's a time of the most material abundance that mankind has ever known in our history. And yet we're in a time of very heightened anxiety. And I think Jesus' words are every bit as relevant today, if not more so, than they were 2,000 years ago when he first spoke them to that first century audience. And so let's take some time and walk out point by point what Jesus is saying here and how we can apply this to our lives. So as is often the case, when you jump into a passage in the middle of a chapter, in the middle of a book... It begins with, therefore. And we can't just shrug that off. We always have to say, okay, that tells us it's, this is building on something that Jesus already said before this. And so very quickly, we need to look at verses 19 through 24, where Jesus lays the foundation. He works his way forward to this therefore. He builds several ideas that we're going to look at And then on those ideas, 
he then steps forward with the section that we're going to be spending most of our time in today. And so first, we look at 19 through 21. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There is a ton to be said about this verse. I could preach the whole sermon just on these three verses in this one section. Um, if you want to see it expounded on more, uh, back in 2015, Rich uh, preached, preached through this passage, and you could uh, uh, go on our website and listen to that sermon. Uh, so we won't draw out all the themes of exactly what treasures are and all the things like that today, but the, the most important thing that I want you to draw out from this as we move forward today is the idea that your heart follows your treasure. Your heart follows your treasure. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart is going to be. And this is, this is backwards of what we often think. And, and we live in a culture that always tells us, follow your heart. And as Christians, we already know that's a bad idea. We know from passages like Jeremiah 17.9, which tell us that the heart is wicked, is wicked and sick above all things. Who can know it? We know that our sin-corrupted hearts should not be our leaders. But here Jesus gives us another reason why you shouldn't follow your heart. It's because your heart isn't a leader. Your heart is a follower. Your heart chases something else. It follows something else. And what your heart follows is your treasure. Let me give you just a few examples to understand how this works. Imagine you're on a trip. You're in a hotel, just a few-day trip, don't have, a, don't have all that many things packed, and then all of a sudden the fire alarm goes off. It's not a drill, it's not a prank, this building is on fire. You run out with nothing but the clothes on your back, and you're standing in the parking lot looking up at the burning building and wondering, will you, will you get any of your stuff back? You're a little frustrated, it, it, it's, it's a little uncomfortable, but you're not that worried. There's not all that anxiety. I could buy another toothbrush. Suitcases aren't that expensive. A couple sets of clothes, they might have been nice clothes, but it's, at the end of the day, you're not that worried. Your heart isn't troubled by this. You're just grateful to have made it out. Now, same thing happens, but this time you're in your own bedroom at home run out of the building, nothing but the clothes on your back, standing out there looking at the burning building, and you don't know if you're going to get anything in that house back. How do you feel now? The anxiety, the weight on you, it's hard to measure. What's the difference? Your treasure's in there. Your treasure's in there, and therefore your heart is in that building. That fire is consuming your treasure, and therefore, even though, you're, even though you made it out, in a sense, that fire is consuming you. Your heart is with that treasure. Uh, to take another example, imagine, this would not be a financially savvy decision, uh, but imagine there's this company, company that you think is probably doing pretty successful, you don't have any emotional attachment to it, but you just think it's a wise investment. And so you take your whole savings and dump it into the stock market buying shares in that company. Before, this was an intellectual decision. 
but now that you've done it, you've put all your treasure into shares in that company. Your heart is now invested in the success or failure of that company. Now your heart has followed your treasure and you are going to care about that company. You're going to stress over its struggles and celebrate its victories in a way you never did before. It's no longer an intellectual, hey, I think this is a pretty good investment. You care now. Why? Because your heart followed your treasure. You want to lead your heart? You want to make yourself care about something? Give so sacrificially to it that it really costs you. Don't just donate some extra. Dump into this thing. Your heart will follow. You will care about where you have placed your treasure. And so Jesus tells us to, to uh, store up for ourselves treasure in heaven where nothing can touch it, where there can be no fire that consumes it. There will be no flood that molds it. There will be no rust that corrodes it. These treasures will last forever and nothing can touch them. And if my heart is with those treasures, if that is where I am, if my, heart, if I, my treasures are in heaven where I know they cannot be touched, what's that going to do for my Anxiety, where's that weight going to be? Well, we're going to see that as this works out. One of the reasons why we are so anxious is because our heart follows our treasure and treasure stored up on earth will not last. It will come to ruin at some point. It's a matter of when and how and we don't know and we have no control over it and we are anxious. But the issue here ultimately is faith. Jesus is telling us in this section to put treasures that we can't see in a place that we can't see and to trust they're there at the word of a God who we cannot see. We the degree to which we can follow Jesus' advice here is the degree to which we can take God at His word. The issue here is faith. But don't let me get too ahead of myself. We're going to see this much more as we work forward. So, and I'm already halfway preaching that sermon I said I wasn't going to on this one section. So, let's move on. Um, so, Jesus goes on to say, as for, or sorry, reading the wrong passage there. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now again, there's a lot to unlock here in the uh, idioms and the language that Jesus uses here, and we won't belabor it all today. But again, there's one thing I want you to, to take away, and that there's a wordplay Jesus uses here that in modern culture we don't quickly catch. And that is that the phrase, your eye is bad, is a euphemism in Near Eastern culture. It is, it's an idiom that has to do with greed and jealousy and covetousness. The bad eye, the one who has an evil eye, is one who looks jealously, enviously at other people's possessions or fortune. And so Jesus does a wordplay talking about if your eye is bad. Now, you don't have to take my word for it that that's what this means. If you look a little further later in Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a parable 
about a landowner who hires workers at the beginning of the day to come work a full day in his, his vineyard, and he, offer, and he makes a contract with them, I will pay you a denarius, a fair day's wage. And they agree, yeah, that's fair, let's, let's do that. Later in the day, he brings in more workers and just tells them, I'll pay you whatever's right. Okay, we just need some work, we'll do it. And he keeps doing that throughout the day as it gets later and later, getting more workers and more workers until finally the last workers he get only work a few hours before the sun sets and they can't work anymore. The landowner lines all the workers up and he pays them all the full denarius as if they worked the entire day. And the guys who work the full day are really upset because the guys who work just a couple hours got the same wage as them for the full day's work that they put in. And the landowner rebukes them and says, Did, I didn't cheat you. Didn't you agree, Denari, this is a fair day's wage? What is it to you if I want to be generous with my money and give the rest of these men a full day's wage too? It's my money. I could do with it what I want. If I want to pay them a full day's wage too, that doesn't wrong you. Why? And then your translation most of your translations will say something like, are you envious because of my generosity? But you'll probably have a footnote there that'll tell you what the literal translation is. What the landowner says is, uh, is your eye bad because I am good? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Here, again, we have the idea of the bad eye is these men who are looking enviously at what the other men are getting and are therefore discontented with what they have. They receive the fair wage that they enthusiastically agreed to at the beginning of the day, but now because other men got the same for less work, all of a sudden they're not happy with their wages anymore. They're looking enviously, jealously at these other men and wanting a bigger reward. All of a sudden they want more, and he says, look, is your eye bad? because I'm good to these other men. And so this is the idea of the bad eye, the evil eye. And so when Jesus says, um, the lamp of the eye is the body, and he says, if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. Envy, jealousy, discontentment, covetousness darkens us to the core. The soul is darkened by a jealous yearning for what others have. Looking around and constantly seeing what others have and therefore being unsatisfied with what we have. It darkens the soul of a man. Jesus continues on from there in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And two masters, ultimately, eventually, faithfulness to one will mean unfaithfulness to the other. They will make mutually exclusive demands on you. And to give one example of these two specific masters, First um, John three sixteen and 17, says, by this we know that he laid down, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, 
How does God's love abide in him? So here's one example of a situation where the love of God and the love of money, these two masters become mutually exclusive. You see your brother in need, and you have more than you need, and you say, I'm not willing to give up my stuff. I like this stuff. Or what if something bad happens later, and I need this stuff? I don't, maybe I don't need it now, but I might need it then. I can't part with it for the sake of my brother. And this says, then you're not loving God. You're loving money. You're loving the world. You're serving a different master. If your heart was with God, then you would trust God to provide for you later, and you would give your extra stuff to help your brother now. This is just one possible example the New Testament gives. You could, you could come up with many where devotion to money, possessions, comfort, wealth, status, lifestyle comes into conflict with devotion to God in particular situations. That doesn't mean it's always wrong to have a comfortable, wealthy lifestyle. But at the end of the day, the issue is faith. If the demands of Scripture in a situation in my life mean that I need to give up what I have and trust God with my future, can I do that? Or am I clinging tightly to what I have to control my own fate with my possessions, with my own strength, with my own stuff? And so here is where we arrive at our therefore. Jesus has laid this foundation of a right view of our love of God, our love of money, the way our heart chases our treasure and where our treasure should be stored up, that envy and greed and looking at what other, what other people have instead of being content with what we have darkens the soul. We look at how the, Jesus has laid this foundation, but then he takes it to a whole nother level. Up to this point, we've been talking about treasures. We've been talking about uh, uh, matters of, of luxury and abundance or when you have extra of something. But now Jesus is going to take this to a whole other level. For here he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about the body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's verse 25. So where's the, the turn he's taken here? Now he's saying, okay, not, don't even be anxious. Don't even be worried about the basic necessities of life. How much less the abundance, the extra of life. Don't even be worried about the basic necessities. And this is a turn because if there was somebody who woke up hungry and with nothing in the pantry, nothing in the fridge, and he didn't know where he was going to get food that day, and he wanted food that day, we wouldn't say that man was acting out of love of money. He just wants to be rich. He wants to have what everyone else has. No, he wants food. We need food. Food is good. Nothing in Scripture is saying that food is bad or we shouldn't want to get to eat every day. But he says, don't be anxious about it. There's a difference between doing the basic duties and responsibilities you have to do to provide for your basic needs and being anxious about those things. I brush my teeth twice a day. Anybody else? Anybody? Yeah? Uh, are you anxious about your teeth? Do you wake up every morning and your head pops off? Oh no, i got to get to the toothbrush now. The teeth, they're going to rot. Uh, call the dentist. This isn't the way we work. This is, we, 
We know what our responsibility is, and we do it, and it's right to do it. It's responsible to do it. We take care of the body God gave us, including, you know, brushing and cleaning our teeth. But we're not anxious about it. We're not worried about it. We do what needs to be done, and we trust that it's probably going to work. We, we, we leave the rest out of our control. We, 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 we understand what we're supposed to do, and we do it. And what's not in our control, we don't worry about it. And so, when we are worried about something like this, there's something more going on than just, I have a healthy and proper concern to do my part and be responsible. Because things like brushing our teeth aren't like that, even though those are also basic necessities of, of physical care that we need to do. And so, when we're having anxiety about these things, there is more going on. We're trying to take a level of control and a burden on ourselves that doesn't belong to us. And so Jesus says, don't be anxious even about the most obvious thing to be anxious about, the basic physical necessities of life, food, water, clothing. And he was saying this to an audience that was not guaranteed food, water, and clothing every day. I mean, none of us are, but in, a, in the, the culture and place in which we live, we can at least feel as though we are guaranteed these things. We, we don't know anyone who has absolutely no access to food. It, you may have to suck up your pride to go to the food banks and go to the things to get, but food is available. Clean water is fairly easy to come by free in the public. Clothing is, is, is made and produced and distributed in abundance. When Jesus said, don't worry, about don't worry about what you wear, that didn't mean what it means today. When someone's worried about what to wear today, they're worried about which of the many garments in their closet they should put on today. Worried about which one is going to look best or be most fitting where they're going. This is talking about people who are actually worried tomorrow they might not have anything to put on. And Jesus isn't using hyperbole here. In Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptist is preaching and the crowd is crying out, what should we do? One of the things that he says is, the man who has two shirts should give one to the man who has no shirt. We've never met the man who has no shirt. We've never met the man who only has two shirts. We don't realize how good we have it. Jesus was speaking to a place where what to wear tomorrow was a legitimate area of concern that I might not have clothes to put on my body. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. The guy gets, gets beat up and robbed and he's left what? Naked in the street. Why is he naked? Because the thieves took his clothes. Why'd they take his clothes? Because clothes are valuable. You can go fetch a price in the market for those clothes. Not everyone has clothes. And so they steal even the man's clothes because they're going to go take those and sell them and make money off them. The way someone might break in and steal your electronics. Clothes had a value back then that they don't have today because they're so widely produced and distributed. And so when Jesus says, don't worry about what you wear, this was a bigger physical necessity concern than it is for us today. 
And so Jesus is talking in food, water, and clothing about the absolute bare necessities of life. And he says, even about these, don't be anxious. Why? Why? Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What's he saying? God provides. God provides for for beings of much less value than men and women made in the image of God. God provides for beings that don't have foresight to work and labor and store things up and save for the bad times. By the way, this is not saying don't save things for the bad times. This isn't saying that when you harvest your crop, you don't set some aside to get through the winter when you can't grow anything. In the ancient world, you had to store into barns to live. And this isn't saying be like the birds. They don't sow or reap, and neither should you. No, it's saying birds who can't do what you can do to provide for themselves still don't worry because God provides for them. Even the birds that can't do what you can do are taken care of. How much more should you not worry? Even the birds, which are of comparative lower value to God than the beings that he made in his image, the people that Jesus, who was preaching this thing, was going to go to a cross and die for to give eternal life to, much more value. If God's going to take care of even the birds, He's going to take care of you. Yes, still sow, still reap, still store what you can, but if it all goes up in flames, God's still going to take care of you. We, just like with brushing our teeth, we do our duty, we do the things we're supposed to do, but we don't take the weight of anxiety on us. We leave the rest that's beyond our control to a loving God who will take care of us. God is provider, and therefore we need not be anxious. This is a lesson that God is trying to teach His people throughout Scripture. I wanted to go through a ton of examples of this. I'll hit just two. Um, In that, in the wilderness, after the, the people of Israel were delivered out of Egypt, God provided them with manna, miraculously given bread, that they would go out. They still had to go out and gather it. There was still work involved. But they'd wake up every morning and it would be there. And they would go out and gather it. And God provided. You're in the desert. God gave them food. And yet, if they tried to hoard it all up, go up and gather all the manna so that I've got this manna in case God doesn't come through for me tomorrow. If they tried to act faithlessly, and hoard up this manna to take control of what happened to the manna. God caused it to rot. So you had to go out and gather the manna the next day. You had to trust each morning God was going to provide the food that they needed for the day. Then God brought them into the land. Now they have their own fields to sow and graze their flocks and take care of themselves. Okay, so now things are different, right? Not exactly. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 11... God actually specifies, the land I'm giving you is not like Egypt, where you can irrigate your your fields from a big river like the Nile. 
and you can make sure that you have plenty of water for your fields. No, I'm giving you a land that's, that's watered by the rains. You're going to have to count on the seasonal rains. I'm choosing a land for you where every year you can go out and sow and till your fields and do all the work, but at the end of the day, you will be utterly dependent on me to water your fields. I've chosen a land for you specifically because this land will teach you to rely on me as provider. The whole structure, the whole narrative of Scripture, example after example could be given where God is trying to teach His people this reality that Jesus is teaching right here. God will provide. You need not be anxious. And when the people of Israel were anxious, when they didn't trust God as provider, what did they end up doing? They tried to hedge their bets by turning to other gods who also might be able to provide the rain. Maybe if we worship more gods, one of them will provide for us this year. What did God do? He withheld the rain. Okay, go ahead. Let Baal give you the rain. Oh, he can't. Trust me and me alone. This is the point. God wants us to depend on Him, to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus goes on from there. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Matthew 27. In the parallel passage in Luke 12, 25 through 26, uh, Luke records an extra clause that Jesus said that, uh, that helps us see the point of this even more. Or in Luke it says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? You're anxious about food because food sustains your life. But is your anxiety sustaining your life? Is it adding another minute, another second to your life? Can you extend your life at all by being more anxious about it? No. We're anxious about things. Anxiety is ultimately me taking a burden on myself that doesn't belong to me. It's, it's trying to have a sense of control. It's yearning for a sense of control over something that is inherently out of my control. And this is the point Jesus makes here. These things aren't in your control. No matter how hard you try to put the burden on yourself, you can't do anything about it. So stop worrying and trust the people whose responsibility it is. In this case, the one whose responsibility it is. You know, this would be like a six-year-old child worrying about the family's budget. Not your place. Just go be a kid. Let us worry about the budget. We'll take care of it. You don't need to. You're, you're ruining your childhood by heaping a burden on you that doesn't belong to you and that you can't help with. Stop. And I'm not saying this to beat you with it, little kid. I'm saying this because I love you. And God is saying this to us because He loves us. He does not want us to bear this weight. This weight doesn't belong to us. God has gladly taken this weight on Himself and committed to be our provider. Worry does no good. 
Jesus continues with another example. Verse 28 through 30. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This largely is making the same point that the analogy of the birds has already made. He's just making it with our clothing as well. God clothes, but this takes it to another level because even a bird is of more value than a weed. Uh, that that the, the wild grasses in the field that have their blossoms, that often sprout beautifully in the spring morning and may even be withered by that noon under the hot, uh, hot daylight sun. And yet, for that instant, that moment of that plant's life, the beauty with which God lavishly clothes these simple plants. And if God is going to do that for the grass, He's going to do it for you. If God's going to so clothe the grass, you don't have to worry about your clothing. And again, we're not worried about clothing specifically in this way. But think about the things you are worried about. The, the, the analogy apl applies across genres here. The things that we heap this anxiety on us for when we are doing all that is righteously expected of us, do your duty, but don't worry. Don't take the burden on yourself that doesn't belong to you and here, but Jesus gets to the point in those last words. Oh, you of little faith. You of little faith. Again, we all kind of chuckled when I used the example about a, a six-year-old who was suffering under anxiety over the family budget. But the reason we did is because for the most part, except in uh, extreme circumstances, kids don't worry about those things. They don't. They scarcely care to even know about those things. They don't worry about it. Why? Why don't kids worry about those things? Because they have trust in their parents. They trust their parents to provide. And however undeserving of that trust I might be, my kids have that trust for me. We have a Father in heaven who is genuinely worthy of our unfettered, unqualified trust and confidence that He will provide for us. But we don't trust Him. An ancient pastor named Cyril of Alexandria uh, used an even more extreme example. He pointed out that in the ancient world, even slaves trusted their wicked masters to feed them a wicked master acting out of pure pragmatism would at least give food to his slave. He doesn't starve his slave because he wants his slave to... It's a financial investment. We actually have letters preserved from Roman pagan slave owners writing, giving each other advice about managing their estates. And one of the things they talk about is the really dangerous jobs where someone might get hurt or, or critically wounded. 
that you hire people to do those. You don't send your slaves to do those jobs. Why? Because they're concerned about the well-being of their slaves? No, it's just it's a financial investment. If he gets hurt, I have to take care of him. The other guy gets hurt, I'll just fire him. They didn't have laws protecting workers back then. You hire people to do the, to do the, uh, the, the dangerous work so you can throw them out if they get hurt and hire a new guy. You can't do that with your slaves. You own them. You have to take care of them. So a wicked, sinful slave master with no merciful intentions whatsoever, his slave would still ultimately trust him at least for food and water, that he was going to get those things out of pure pragmatism. And yet, that, and, and what Cyril points out is the wickedness of the fact that that slave had more trust in his evil slave master than we often have in our loving, benevolent God. That a slave could have more confidence in his master, his evil owner, than we have in our God. That should cut us to the heart. We should feel the weight of that. But at the end of the day, Jesus didn't speak any of these words to depress us and make us hang our head in shame. Even when he came down with his one hard rebuke in this passage where he says, oh, you of little faith, he's not ultimately saying it to dash us into despair. He wants us to realize where we're at so that we can turn in confidence. He gives us all these analogies of God providing for grass and birds because he wants us to step back and realize God does provide even for things of less value than me. I can trust God. Jesus wants us to be free of this anxiety and to live in trust and faith in Him, to recognize Him for who He is, to rely on Him, and therefore to walk in confidence even in our hardest times. So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Make your concern the kingdom of God. And you know what? All that stuff you were anxious about, God's going to take care of it. You make your priority the kingdom of God. And that God whose kingdom is your priority, he'll take care of you. All that stuff that you are tempted to be anxious about will be provided. Now, that's not a promise, a guarantee of anything like the modern American standard of living where we have this massive amount of abundance. There is no promise here that we won't come on what, what from our culture's perspective would be really, really hard times where we lack many of the comforts and luxuries that everyone else has around us. But if we can get, get rid of that envious eye that compares ourselves to the other person and if our treasures are not heaped up on this earth, if we can look at our circumstance and say, even in my lowest point, God is providing. He is taking care of me. Needs are met. We can walk forward in trust and know that there is a kingdom to come where treasures are heaped up 
with comforts far beyond anything that even the best times in this world can offer me, if we believe Him. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The answer to anxiety is faith. By faith, we pray each morning, God, give us this day our daily bread. And we trust Him to do it. We don't pray that and then get back, get back up and immediately start saying, okay, but where am I going to get my daily bread? You know where. You just asked Him. That's where. And sometimes, living at a place, living in a situation where we, we, we have enough lack in our life, not abject destitution, but living with enough uncertainty, with little enough left over, little enough extra, where we really need to rely on God, where we know we're relying on Him, is the best place to be to cultivate true, genuine faith. Sometimes that situation that we think is the lowest time in our life might be a little closer to an ideal place for the Christian to live. One of the most challenging passages to me in the book of Proverbs is Proverbs 37 through 9, where the author writes, two things I ask of you, talking to God, do not deny them, uh, do, uh, do not deny them to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Both riches and abject poverty can be faith-destroying. Yet there is a certain blessing in living at a level where we do have what we need but not much more than what we need, where we know, we know that we are depending on God for absolutely everything, where we cannot forget our God and His hand in our life to give us each day the things that we need. And that doesn't mean we need to artificially place ourselves in a greater poverty than we're in, but when we are in these situations, the author of Proverbs looked at that kind of of lack and minimal living as a blessing that God could give him. That if God and his providence brought him to that place, but that was a healthy place to be. I don't have so much riches that I can put my confidence in myself. I don't have so much poverty that I'm tempted to sin to get what I need. But I trust each day that God is supplying. And let me tell you, whether you are rich or poor, each day it is God who is sustaining you. Every moment of every day, every beat of your heart, every breath that you take, it is God who is sustaining you. We need to remember that. That should be reflected in our life, in our priorities, and in our prayer. The cure to anxiety is faith. It is trust. And we all, Every one of us need more of it.
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much. You have been so good to us. Every one of us here, every meal we've ever eaten, every glass of cool water we've ever drank, every garment we've ever worn, every good night's sleep we've ever had, every warm place to lay our heads, every night outside the rain or snow or hot beating sun and during the day. God, you have provided shelter and clothing, food and water in abundance. You have cared for us. But as if that were not enough, you have provided for our eternity in Jesus Christ who came and died and paid the price for our sin and secured for us a heavenly dwelling forever for all who will repent and believe on him. God, you are a great and amazing God. Teach us to rely on you more. Teach us to trust you individually and as a church. God, we love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.